fair warning, you're about to hear a conversation between me and someone in politics, and we're not going to talk politics. This is the resurgence. Not everything's political. wanting to do this for a while, just as a concept, can people in the United States of America who are in politics on both sides of the aisle, can a guy like me, can I talk to a Democrat? Can, can I talk to a Republican? I may not necessarily agree with on everything, but have a civil conversation about things that aren't political to see each other as a person and not just as, as someone on the opposite side of the aisle or an opposite side of an issue. That's really been the genesis of this. And I wanted to call it not everything's political to emphasize that I'm going to have a conversation with someone in politics, maybe a Republican, maybe a Democrat, and we're not going to talk about politics. We're going to get to know each other and get to know their background and where they come from in life and what they like to do without getting into the politics of the day. You will not hear a conversation about Hillary Clinton. You will not hear a conversation about Donald Trump. You will not hear a conversation about the hot button issue in Congress today. You'll hear about this person as a person. And joining me for the first episode of Not Everything's Political, the Speaker of the House of Representatives himself, Congressman Paul Ryan of Wisconsin. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Congressman Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House. How are you? I'm doing all right, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So the, the whole concept here is is n- non-political topics to show you actually can't have a conversation in this day and age about non-political things. and. I, I want to start with you with something that is I'm becoming interested in, and that is fly fishing, because yeah. I understand not only are you obsessed with fly fishing, you actually proposed to your wife at your favorite fishing hole. I did. I did. At that fishing hole, we, um, we're musky people. So if you're from North, North Woods, like Wisconsin, um, we don't fly fish there. I do love to fly fish, but um, up there we, we fish for musky, walleye, northern, and we spin cast, spin tackle. Um, and I grew up... Um, going to my, my best friend's cottage on Lake Big St. Germain in St. Germain, Wisconsin, where um, there's a little um, canal that connects Lake Content with Lake St. Germain. People in the Northwoods might know a little bit about this if they're from northern Wisconsin. It's a small town up there. Um, I fished my whole life growing up up there, and it's a spot I really just have loved all my life, and that's where I proposed to my wife at halftime. Uh, during the Badgers' Final Four um, game. (laughs) I'm glad you waited until halftime. (laughs) Yeah, it was during halftime, yeah. So everybody, I mean, I shouldn't say everybody, but Steve Hayes over the Weekly Standard and Tucker Carlson and even Vice President Cheney have all told me that there's just something relaxing about fly fishing itself that I should just stand in my backyard and cast a line. That's true. You actually should do that. I mean, I used to, when I was a kid, I practiced in, in, in in a field just in like a park. We had this little park in our neighborhood and I just go practice up there because it's all about getting the cast right and getting the roll right. And uh, whether you're dry or wet, those are different terms you use. It's extremely therapeutic. And then you need to get good when you're actually in a stream because you can get tied up on, on, on branches all the time if you don't watch what you're doing. So I'm a big bow hunter too. And so I look at fly fishing versus regular fishing like I look at bow hunting versus gun hunting. Um, it's just harder to do it's harder to get fish, 
and it just requires another level of, of sort of a, attention and skill, and that's what makes it more challenging, and that's why I like fly fishing just like I love bow hunting. See, I, I just I think it would aggravate me. I, it, but this bow hunting thing, you really are into bow hunting. I mean, yeah, that's my favorite passion. That's probably my biggest thing I do, my, my favorite sport, my favorite um, hobby of all is bow hunting. Now, the last time you and I had a conversation, he, he, we kept getting interrupted like every five minutes from your nephews. I could hear, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, are you done? Yeah. Go, I was, going yeah, off hunting. Right, you and I talked, I was hunting. I was, we were at hunt camp then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were at deer camp. We call it deer camp. I grew up doing deer camp, which is, it was during um, opening week of deer season. And uh, I was taking, probably that day, I was probably taking my nephew. I take a different, I hunt the morning by myself, and then I hunt with kids in the dusk hunt, because the kids don't like waking up at you know, before the crack of dawn. So I, I take my kids and my nephews hunting um, for deer in the dusk, and I hunt myself in the in the dawn hunt. I, I am, I'm not a hunter. I grew up in Dubai. We had camels, and you weren't allowed you to did? shoot them. And yeah, I, I did. You grew up there from 5 to 15. Oh, and wow. So now my 7-year-old's like, Dad, we got to go hunting. I know nothing about going hunting. Oh, I could I could send you some books. <laughs> send <laughs> me some books. I mean, he... I grew he, up hunting. Uh, it's, it's a big deal in Wisconsin. Actually, my dad... Oh, it is around here, too. Hunting, wasn't even into guns. Um, I always wanted to hunt. It was just something that I had inside myself. It was big in Wisconsin. I had friends who did it. I mowed lawns all summer when I was 12 years old to save up enough money to buy my first shotgun. So I bought my first gun when I was 12. Um, had been hunting ever since then. Uh, before then, I hunted with a Crossman 760 BB gun, uh, you know, just in the woods for squirrels. And uh, I've been hunting ever since. And then I got into archery in my early 20s. Wow. Yeah, so my wife just gave our daughter, um, my wife's mother's 22 that she bought at Sears and Roebuck back in the 50s. Sure. And during if that kid didn't go out there and from 50 yards was able to get just center of the bullseye consistently. I'm, I I was impressed. That's I've got my grandfather's old 22, which is like that. A Sears and Roebuck, just bolt action. I had to go mm-hmm. to a gun show to find the, the the magazine to fit it because um we lost it and I finally found one um just an old old Remington I've got my grandfather's old um, lever action uh, 22 that was made in 1916 which is wow. really pretty cool thing that's pretty awesome all right to, yeah I, I want to shift gears here because I read an article last night that you listened to Beethoven I listen to a lot of stuff Beethoven is definitely uh, Beethoven's ninth is my favorite. Okay, I, I was going to uh, ask. Yeah, the ninth for sure. Um, and so I'm weird. I'm, I listen to country. I listen to heavy metal, Me hard rock, and classical music. I'd say Led Zeppelin's probably my favorite thing, but I do listen to classical music. Um, and Beethoven's ninth is by far my favorite. Yeah, I, I never got into to Led Zeppelin. I, I'm more of a modern alt rock guy in classical music. Growing up in Dubai, if 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 a shake died, you had nothing on radio for a week but classical music, and I just developed a taste for it from that. Um, Beethoven, I like Beethoven seventh just because no one ever talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> I have the fifth and the ninth on my iPad. I've got some Mozart, like Onyx Pine Out, Knock Music. I've got Tchaikovsky, 1812, and, um, Bach to got an E, Fuga and E nice. minor or something like that. I forget what that's called. The, the um, 1812 Overture. The, the, I used to love, you. we'd come home during the summer to my grandparents and watch A&E did the Boston Pops for 4th of July, and they always ended it with the 1812 Overture. And I, I hate that it's not live, broadcast live anymore. Well, let me ask you a question, because I've stayed over in Dubai a number of times on my way to Afghanistan, um, and on my way up into Iraq, and they, they sort of lay you over in a hotel, and every time I turn on the TV, they have this, this, this um, 
show where they had these guys using chrome-plated Kalashnikovs, and they're throwing them around like batons. And it's like a dance show. Do you have any idea what the heck <laughs> yeah, that is? I, I'm not sure. No, it's, it's been a long time. We moved home in 1990, so it's been a while. But I, I will tell okay. you that they start typically – TV there used to not start until 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday, 3 p.m. on the weekend. And it started first – was the national anthem and they had a big military display and you did have the guys throwing the rifles doing the doing the yeah. marching and then it went into call to prayer for 30 minutes and then you had like an hour of cartoons before you had real tv shows no commercials so like the last by the three way. times i went there i turn on the tv to see if i can find it and it is it's sort of like um you know you almost feel like simon cowell is going to be there to judge the guy because <laughs> right. they actually have judges judging these 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 guys who are you know kind of like batons throwing around Kalashnikovs. I, I, I do know what you're talking about. It, it is, and they play the national anthem. We we used to live, we were about three blocks from the, the prison for the Emirates, and every morning at 6 a.m., the whole neighborhood was woken up by their yeah. national anthem, and TV started at 3 p.m. They had the replay of the national anthem. It was quite an existence to grow oh. up over there. I haven't been back I, since I the 90s. I keep wanting to like get a, a tourist-like I don't know. I'm on on radio now. Get Dubai to suck up to somebody and go on a tourism thing for radio. <laughs> That's it's it's a very interesting place. I tell you, it's not it's different than Jamesville, Wisconsin. I can tell you that. I can imagine. So, speaking of Wisconsin, uh, how did you wind up going from Wisconsin to Washington? That's a good question. I was interested in economics. That's what I studied in school. I was also interested in political philosophy, and I went to Washington at first with an internship just to learn something that translated into a job offer. Um, the thinking I had at the time was to spend some time learning public finance, working for my home state Senator, a guy named Bob Caston. He pretty much right after that lost, um, Jack Kemp, who I adored, I adore Jack um, Kemp. was looking for a young staff economist, basically a, a somebody to do his economic policy work at this new think tank he was forming called Empower America, and he hired me to do that. And I thought all along, I'll do this for a few years, you know, two years, three years, and then I wanted to go um, further my education in economics and go into the field of economics. And basically, Jack Kemp taught me so much. I always grew up with mentors, and uh, Jack was my mentor. And he basically taught me that the battle of ideas, as he described it, of, of fighting for principles, public policy. We were part of the conservative movement. And I learned so much as a young sort of foot soldier in the conservative movement in those days that I just really took it on as my vocation. And I realized that was my passion, fighting uh, for conservative ideas in what Jack described, the battle of ideas. Never did I think that I'd actually run for office, but it's just sort of an, an opportunity presented itself, and I decided to do that. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur in public policy, and so I thought the best way to do that was either, you know, try to run a think tank, or which is the sort of path I was I was getting myself on, or run for office. And I ended up deciding to run for office. I was young; I was 27 when I took a crack at it, turned 28, and then won. Um, and I was a pretty young guy, and uh, and and that's when I first came to D.C. Wow. I'm into Congress, excuse me. So what did you want to do growing up? Because the only people I know who wanted to be wanted a politician. To be a doctor growing up. Okay, yeah. you wanted to be what? I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, like my grandfather. My grandfather I adored. The guy who's 22 I, I have in my wall at home. Yeah. Um, he was a doctor in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. And then um, I realized, you know, I just sort of 
lost my interest after taking chemi- chemistry and statistics. <laughs> I know the and, feeling. Uh, and I fell in love with economics. And, and you know, really it was – you know, I read all those Ayn Rand novels when I was a kid in high school, and it, it interested me in economics. And then I started reading the Austrians, and in college I studied the Austrians, Hayek, Mises, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Chicago school like Milton Friedman. And I just fell in love with that, and that's what I really took to. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Jack Kemp. When I was in the College Republicans at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, in 96, he was running for vice president and came through Macon on a, a campaign tour. This was back when Georgia was competitive between the Democrats and Republicans. And mm-hmm. I actually drove in the motorcade. I was the lead car behind his limo. And surprisingly, years later, I learned it was Ed Fulner I was driving around oh, uh, wow, in the really? minivan. Yeah. Small world. I've known Ed a long, long time. He's a good friend of mine. He, he, Kemp was the nicest guy. He, I mean, yeah. I called my, my now wife, she was my my roommate's fiance's roommate at the time, and told her I was driving around Jack Kemp. She had no idea who he was, couldn't understand that someone would campaign to be vice president of the university. And I was like, no, you, pre- vice president of the United States. <laughs> Wait a second. It was your fiance, your wife was my, your my, fiance's roommate. Yeah, my no, my my, my wife. Say that again. I didn't. Get okay, it. my wife. Maybe I misstated. Uh oh. My, my roommate's fiance's roommate. Okay, it's okay, now okay. my wife. You, you sure? yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you I, I ran through that fast. <laughs> or maybe I misheard it. So <laughs> she she had no idea about politics at all. I tell her I'm driving to Jack Kemp's motorcade. I'm so excited. And she is she's like, you've got a campaign to be vice president of the university? No, the United States. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. He was just the nicest guy, though. Yeah, I was very taken up. I, I got uh, – Jack really got me into this, and I was – part of what I guess you'd call the early, early supply-side movement. And then there were other icons like um, limited government advocates. Um, I was a big fan of, of the guys at the Cato Institute. Um, I'm really good friends with Steve Moore, who back in those days was over at the Cato Institute. Um, Bob Bartley, who passed away but wrote Great Defense. And obviously um, I had this college professor who gave me my first issue of National Review, told me all about William F. Buckley, and then I was hooked from then on. You know, it's, okay. It's funny you say that. When we went, moved to Dubai, our shipments came one by air and one by ship, and the ship cargo could take six months. And my books got mixed up in it as a kid. I'm five years old, and so my bedtime stories for the first six months until our cargo gets there is my mother subscribed to National Review and would read me Buckley's columns, and I brainwashed oh, him awesome. as a five year old. <laughs> that's awesome. That's amazing. Really, wow. I didn't get it. I, I wasn't introduced until I was about 19 years old, but still. Southern Living and, and National Review as a five-year-old. Those red recipes were my bedtime stories. <laughs> That's pretty good. My parents were Milton Friedman fans. And oh, so nice. I read Free to Choose when I think I was like 16 or something like that. Now, before you get off here, and our, our time is short, but I, I want to shift gears a little bit to something. My wife and you, to a degree, have something in common in that – she was young when she lost her mother, as, as you were when you lost your dad. And I, my wife, actually, her milestone came two years ago when she crossed the age that her mother died of breast cancer. She was in first oh, really? grade when her mom died. And so it was a real big milestone. And I'm just – you're Speaker of the House of Representatives. You, you're raising your family in Wisconsin. How does what happened in your family affect now the way you're raising and, and dealing with your kids? Two very, very significant ways which is I really protect my family time. It's one of the conditions I put down in taking this job. Um, I don't live here in D.C. Um, I don't even have a place here. I, I sleep on a cot in my office, as I have for many years. Um, then I'm home every single weekend. So I don't fly around the country, which is what John Boehner did and Denny Hassard, and, and I'm sure Nancy did it as well. 
uh, those were all empty nesters. And, and you know, in the before me, everybody expected the speaker traveled every weekend to members' districts. I just don't do that. And so I'm home every weekend. I guard that family time because time is precious. They grow up only once. And I'm, I guess, a little extra sensitive to that point. That's point one. Point two, I, um, I watch my health. Uh, my dad died of a heart attack at 55, his dad at 57, and his dad, my great-grandfather, at 59. So a Ryan male hasn't made it to 60 in three generations in my family. So uh, I, along with my brothers and my sister, are really, really vigilant about this. So I just kind of watch my health and my diet um, because we all want to beat what we call the family curse. And so I feel good about it. I'm in good shape, good health, and, uh, you know, get measured for all the things you get measured for, your your right. cholesterol and everything, and I'm, I'm doing well. But but I am conscious of that, and I'm conscious of the time I have while I have it. I, I should probably do a little bit better job of that myself. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, yeah. Wisconsin churns out Miller Lite, and there's always that in my fridge. That's the beer so. I drink because it's light. It's 96 calories, low in there, carbs. There you go. A, a, a mutual friend of ours told me that I should ridicule you for your cheap taste in beer, and I said, I, I share the same taste. I drink Miller Lite and pass the ribbon. Those are the two I drink. So... You know, it's what we drink where I come from. Like, you can take the guy out of Wisconsin. You can't take the Wisconsin out of the guy. All right. L- last question for you. My understanding is that you are a Simpsons watcher and uh, your favorite character. Oh, God, that's a good one. Well, I mean, I always quote Simpsons quite a bit. Troy McClure is not so bad. He's pretty good. He's a good side character. Um, but, I mean, you can't get better than Homer. I mean, what can you say? Okay, excellent. Homer's the best. Yeah, so I, you know. I had a buddy with my uh, bet with a buddy of mine you were going to say Mayor Quimby, so I, I've, I've won the bet. <laughs> yeah, no, Homer. Excellent. Good. Well, listen, I, I, I thank you very much for your time. This is It's nice to be able to have a conversation with someone in politics about yeah, anything I, but politics. Yeah, this is the politics. first one I've had like this in a long, long time. So thanks for the break in the day. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. You bet, Eric. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Join me next Thursday. I'll be interviewing a congressman from Ohio, now the leader of conservatives in the House of Representatives, Congressman Jim Jordan, formerly a wrestler. He'll be joining us here at Not Everything's Political. See you next Thursday.